wonder if you had to make a choice, which would you rather? If you had a choice between, let's say, a, a hot piece of apple pie. Now, I'm not talking about just any apple pie. I'm talking about Miss Vicky's apple pie or Miss Carol's apple pie. I'm talking about one of those that's as thick as it ought to be, and it's still steaming hot, and it's got a fork right by it, by the way. That's important. Would you rather have that, or would you rather have one of those hostess in the sack, preservatives and all? Now, if that's all you got, I guess that's okay, but which one would you rather? Well, obviously. How about this? Would you rather have a fresh loaf of bread? I mean, I'm talking about somebody, they kneaded it themselves, and they mixed it together, and they put it in the oven, and it just fills the, the, the place with the aroma. Some of you have smelled fresh baked bread while it's still being made. I'm telling you what, it makes you hungry just beginning to smell it. You're probably getting hungry right now. It's a good thing it's not a, a, a day for eating dinner afterwards. Take that, or would you rather one of those little, um, y- y'all ever go out to a hotel or something and they feed you those little muffins? You know the ones I'm talking about? They buy from Sam's by the, by the three dozen. And you could throw it at a window and break it. I'm not sure those things are fit for human consumption. Which would you rather have, the fresh baked bread or that day-old muffin? Well, obviously, all of us are going to want the thing that's fresh. You would think so, anyway. We like the fresh. We'd much rather have that. And I remember, as I was a young young person, my, my parents, and they had to feed what they had to feed, and there were six of us kids, and mom and dad, and mom oftentimes would go to the day-old bread store. And we didn't care. We just... You could cut the little green spots off. It still made toast. It didn't matter. You know, it's all right. So that's what we had, and it was okay. But, but obviously, we would rather have the fresh, not the stale and the turning. So keep that in mind as we go back to our survey of the book of Mark. In Mark chapter number 6, we're going to look today at the story, the event in the life of our Lord that most people talk about. Uh, they, they, they say the feeding of the 5,000. Now, as you're turning there to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 6, we know that it says there in the very last verse of this section, verse 44, that there were more than 5,000. There were 5,000 men. There may have been, with women and children together, there may have been as many as 15 or even 20,000 people. But just for our purposes, we're going to stick with the 5,000, and we, though we know there was more than that. So I want to read a few verses here, beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and following. And uh, you begin, uh, you read along as I read aloud. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, we rejoin the story here as the disciples have come back to Jesus. If you remember what Jesus had done, he had sent the disciples out two by two into villages where he was going to be eventually, and he had kind of sent them out on this short-term mission circuit around those little villages there in the area of the Galilee. And so they've come back to Jesus, and they're pumped. You read this, by the way, this is in all four Gospels. This is one of those stories that's in all four of the, the four Gospels that, that uh, Kip was talking about. And, and all of them, they come back, but not all of them tell you how they felt. They came back and they were excited. They were in awe of the power of God that they had seen working through them. They're pumped, but I'll tell you what else they are. They're tired. They were bone tired. And by the way, ministry can be exhausting. 
Kelton, I'll just warn you now, buddy. Ministry can be exhausting. Now, there are good thing, lots of good things about it, but you can wear yourself out doing well. You can get weary in the well-doing. So, so many people here in, in, in this ministry of Jesus were coming and going. I mean, there was a steady stream of the needy, hurting people, seeking Jesus, people in such numbers that the team didn't even have time to sit down and have a meal together. So Jesus calls a break. Let's get away from the crowd for a period of time. Let us rest. And remember, all this takes place, as we saw last week, in the shadow of the murder of John the Baptist. Jesus has just received the message, the, the news that John the Baptist has been beheaded by Herod, basically for the amusement of his wife. While that is still fresh on his mind, here are the disciples all worn out and, and bedraggled, and so Jesus says, hey, let's take a day off. And so they loaded the boat. They got ready to sail away to another place, and... Uh, as they prepared and they planned what to do and where to go, you might think that the crowd would take this as, hey, let's just take a day off too. I mean, these folks had been with him listening, they'd been with him following, they'd been with him watching and hanging on every word. Maybe it was time for them to say, hey, they're heading out to sea, let's just go home and feed the chickens and the cows. You would think that, but you would be wrong. Verse 33, it says, The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. The crowd watched them load the boat. The crowd, these folks that had been with him all this time, they see him ready, out, ready to go out, and they start heading, hey, we want to be with Jesus. So they see him heading out. They start to think, you know what? If we run around to where he's headed, we can be in the front row this time. We're back here in the cheap seats right now. If we get around to where Jesus, as soon as he gets off of the boat, we can be right there, you know, as they used to say, close to the spout where the glory comes out. You know, you've heard that, haven't you? That's, they wanted to be there. And so they thought, hey, we'll run around and see where he's at. Because wherever the boat landed, there he would be. There would be Jesus. Well, they thought to themselves, hey, I'll go get my cousin. You know, my cousin who lives over in the next village, I'll get him and we'll go talk to Jesus. We'll go listen to Jesus. Somebody else might say, I've got a sick uncle up in the village on the way to where Jesus is sailing. I'll go get him. I'll bring him to Jesus, and then God can, or Jesus can take care of my uncle. Or maybe it's uh, uh, some other person might say, I've got that skeptical brother that I really want to have that listen to Jesus. I'm going to bring him to Jesus. They all watch the boat sail away out to sea, and immediately they run around gathering up friends and family they want to bring to Jesus, and they run ahead of the boat. Now, <clears throat> I don't know how far exactly this boat ride was, but it wasn't a huge, long boat ride. They were in Capernaum. Does everybody put that, that up there? This is the Sea of Galilee, and you see Capernaum up there at the top on the left, and then there's another town up there on the right called Bethsaida. They were going to sail from Capernaum to the area of Bethsaida. You see this out here? It would have been light, some, some smooth green grass, a place where they could, they could land. Well, right in the middle of that, if you notice, here is the River Jordan. That's what that valley is right there, the River Jordan. So there's this huge area of... Uh, of what you think of as current or where the confluence of that river is, there's going to be a lot of current. So they're going to sail out a little ways, and then they're going to make a long kind of an arc back over to the area of Bethsaida over there, and that's where they're going to land. How long is that going to take? I mean, it's maybe, you can't tell it from this map, but it's two, three, maybe four miles at the most. How long is that going to take? Not very long, two, maybe three hours. How hard did those people have to run to get there ahead of Jesus? I mean, they went around, they're, they're ski-daddling around, they're hurrying, they're running. To get there before Jesus gets there, they must have really wanted to go to church. So all the rest that Jesus and his disciples got were that boat ride. Isn't that exciting? 
Jesus arrives, and there on the beach was a crowd. And some of them are suspiciously familiar. You know, that one guy who kept going like this way back at the back of the crowd, he's on the front row now. I remember that guy. They look suspiciously familiar, at least some of the faces. And though these men were tired, though Jesus was still mourning over John, he still looked at that crowd as only he could. Look at verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He looked at them with compassion. And why? Scripture says right there that because they were like sheep without having a shepherd. He looked at them and he saw sheep without a shepherd. He saw people that looked as though that's what they were. And what was it about these people that made them look like sheep without a shepherd? Well, I'd like to suggest that, number one, it was because they were so desperately seeking the presence of a shepherd. They had been so long without being well-led that they saw somebody who they could follow. They just couldn't get enough of Jesus. And here they had run completely around the top of the, the lake to be with Jesus again. It'd be almost like if I was in Dallas preaching, and I stopped on the way from Dallas to Oklahoma City to eat dinner, and I get up here for an evening service, and there's the same group of people. That would be exciting to me. But it was probably uh, ex equally as exciting, but they see the, they're seeking the presence of a shepherd. Not only that, but they were expectant. They were desiring the teaching of the word. But also, they came as needy. He saw them as being seeking people, expectant people, and needy people because he brought the broken. They brought the, the sick. You don't see it recorded here in the book of Mark, but I told you this is all four of the, the gospels. In the other three gospels, it tells us that they got the sick, the broken, the lame. All of them are there waiting on the beach when Jesus comes out of the boat. And they were ready to be led. I mentioned it already, but think about this. Their leaders, who should have been leading them to God, were instead leading them astray, leading them to follow after doctrines of men and things that weren't actually from Scripture. They were looking for someone to lead them, while at the same time, and this is it, this is the, the final one, they looked neglected and easy targets for predators. I know most of us have lived here in Oklahoma long enough. You've seen a herd of cows or a flock of sheep, or maybe in Oklahoma a, a, a herd of pigs, that looks neglected. It just doesn't look like it's been well cared for or taken. You know, you can look over the fence and you immediately realize this problem, there's a problem with this herd. There's a problem with these horses. They're thin. They have these vacant-looking eyes. Their coat is kind of shabby. They look like sheep without a shepherd. That's what that crowd looked like to Jesus. And by the way, I wonder, can we find any parallels in our world today? I mean, we can look around at whole segments of our society that are wandering around, lost and neglected, and easy targets for the wolves of this current age. We, it's interesting to me. We live in a world that is at one time the most connected society in the history of the world, and at the same time the most fragmented society in the history of the world. Because we have all of these pieces of technology we can use to communicate, but still people only communicate with those that say the same things they do. They want to get in this little echo chamber. They're saying, well, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. Let's talk about it in our little echo chamber. And they don't go to find out what anybody else believes or thinks. It's interesting to me that people end up lonely, isolated, feeling neglected and forgotten, even though there's so many voices out there demanding our attention. I think I have a small idea of the compassion that drove Jesus to get out of the boat and begin to minister, as it says there. He began to teach them many things. So Jesus began to teach. And one of the neatest things about this whole story to me, and in, over in Luke, it says one thing about what he said. It says he taught them about the kingdom of God. But in Luke, 
is that's it. In Mark, in John, in Matthew, not one word that he teaches here is recorded. He gets out and teaches them many things, clear up almost to evening, and yet none of it's recorded. Maybe because of the food, I don't know. But you know how that is. You talk about food and people just lose you. You just, But anyway, <laughs> he began to teach. Why? Out of compassion. He began to heal. Why? Out of compassion. It wasn't because it was necessary. He began eventually even to feed them out of compassion. Now listen, he could have sent them away. He could have said, guys, we're on vacation. This is our day off. Go home. You know, it's like I say sometimes around here, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. You don't have to be here with us. Well, he didn't do that. Here they got into a boat, 13 men, out for a restful getaway, and they, they come ashore in the middle of a mega church. I mean, pff, here we go. Jesus healed them all. Jesus taught them all. Jesus fed them all, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their position, regardless of whether or not they were eventually going to believe in him or not. He took care of all of them. He ministered to that ginormous crowd. That's, 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 that is a good word, by the way. Because my spell checker helped me spell it right. He ministered to that ginormous crowd, even knowing that many of them would never believe in him. It, it may have been the mega church, but there was still only a few actual number of, 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 of followers. So as we continue, we see that it was, it was compassion that moved Jesus, but now compassion uh, seems to rub off on people. You start being compassionate, other people start to be compassionate as well. And so the disciples... We see here in verse 35, they, having, they saw the crowd, they saw the ministry, they saw the healings. Well, now the sun's beginning to set over in the west, and the crowd is still saying. And so in verse 35, when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Look at verse 36. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two small fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Now stop right there with me for just a minute. Because we know what's about to happen. We've read this story. We know this story. <clears throat> but... Verse 35, if we go back there, the, the, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, it's time to send the folks home. It's time for them to leave, you know. Uh, it's getting late. There's only so many farms and villages, and Philip, who was from that area of Bethsaida, was able to say, well, I know where, where, where some of the farms are and where the town is further inland there. We could all go get chow, but it's time for some beans and bread. Well, what Jesus said is so amazing. Look at it there with me again. In verse 37, you give them something to eat. Now, friends, Jesus knew they had not loaded that boat up with enough to feed 5,000 men plus their kids. By the way, the disciples knew it too. And yet Jesus just goes ahead and says, you give them something to eat. So immediately, the disciples go into problem-solving mode. Okay, well, we're going to have to do this. Let's see, we got, uh, we got all this money in the bag. We got, it's going to cost us, my goodness, this is a lot of people. Uh, this might be a whole year's worth of wages to feed this one crowd. Lord, are you sure? I don't understand. How are we going to do this? And I, <clears throat> When they went into problem-solving mode like that, they missed completely what Jesus said. You see, I believe the disciples missed out on a tremendous blessing here. Because when Jesus looked at those men and said, you feed them, that was authorization 
for the disciples, enough for the disciples to have fed that multitude themselves. You say, now wait a minute, Brother Robert. That would be impossible. Yeah, that's what the disciples thought too. But how come it's so impossible? Don't you remember Elisha the prophet? Well, Elisha the prophet, way back in 2 Kings, he was having a school of the prophets one day, and somebody came to him, kind of as an offering to the prophet. In verse 42, this is 2 Kings chapter 42, a man came from Baal Shalishah and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in the sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, what, will I set this before a hundred men? Because really, when we think about the loaf of bread, we see this big loaf like you buy from Wonder or Hostess. Now, it was more like the size of your hand, like a big, fat tortilla, okay? Five of those and some fresh ears of corn. Somebody had brought that to the, the prophet. Hey, we want to honor you, Mr. Prophet Elisha. Here, you have, this is for you. Elisha said, give that to the men. And the, the servant said, what, what, will I set this before a hundred men? There's not nearly going to be enough. That's my addition. But he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them. And those hundred men, they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Out of five little loaves and some ears of corn. And by the way, what about the manna in the wilderness? How many people of Israel ate for 40 years every day? God can handle this. This is not that big of a deal. But they came to the Savior, and they said, Lord, they don't have any food. To which Jesus responded, you give them something to eat. And I always read that as if saying, when did you go off duty? I didn't hear you punch out and be off duty. Get busy. Go, go feed them. Now, okay, I understand this is just Brother Robert's crazy con conclusion. But I am absolutely convinced that we could be reading here about the story of how the disciples fed 5,000. Because in the authorization, listen to me, if God commands something, if God gives you a commission, anytime God puts a call upon your life, he includes in that command, that commission, or that call, all of the authority and all the power of heaven that it will take to carry out what he commanded. When he sins, he authorizes. When God calls, he empowers. And when he commands, and we go about to obey, all the power of heaven is available to carry out that command. Oh, brother, you couldn't mean me. No, I, I, I'm just... Listen, have you received a command from the Lord? Is there a call upon your life? Are you feeling a call from the Lord? Any command he gives... And by the way, that's actually the key. He better command it. Don't think that you're going to go just kind of figure this out on your own and when, when, when I get a great idea, God will empower it. No, it's when God commands it. But... If he issues a call, he also includes within that call the power to bring it about. If he sends a command, he gives you the authority to make it happen. And then he'll give you the encouragement to get after it. And if that seems just a little over the top, just remember what happened in the next event that we find in Jesus' life. Now, it's not recorded here in Mark. It's over in another gospel. But the very next thing that happened, Jesus dismisses this crowd, and then they, he sends the disciples away in the boat. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, and then Jesus comes walking on the water. You remember what happened next? Peter says, oh! It's Jesus. And Jesus said, be of good cheer, it's I. <coughs> and Peter said, what? Lord, if that's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, what? Come on. Now, that's the Oklahoma version of that. The, the King James says, come. And with that one word, Simon Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. Oh, yeah, we like to talk about how he sank. 
But for a while, there were two men walking on that sea. That's t- it takes some, some, some juice to jump out of a boat and walk on the water. And all of it came from that one word that Jesus gave. But these men, these disciples... I know, they'd come back from very successful mission trips. They were, I mean, they were too much like you and me, I guess. They're what I, I like to call them Gumby disciples. Any of you know who Gumby was back in the day? Some of you played with Gumby. He was this little stretchy guy. You could stretch him out. Some of you had Stretch Armstrong. Gumby was before Stretch. And you could stretch him out, and he would do all kinds of crazy things, but he'd always snap right back to where he was. Well, these disciples were Gumby Christians or Gumby followers. God had stretched them out. They had done some amazing things with, uh, w- with, with their mission trip. They had been places where they'd never been before, seen things they'd never done before. But now they were back off that mission trip, they snapped back into normal shape. And the default position was, Lord, that's impossible. And what's really killing me is they didn't even know how much they didn't have. Because Jesus has to tell them there, um, how much do you have? How many loaves do you have? Go look. They didn't even know yet. We could never feed them. Do you have food? I don't know. They didn't even know. So he went and they looked and they came back. And what did they tell him? Five loaves and two small fish we find out from John. So Jesus goes on from, you give them something to eat. Okay, bring it here to me. Now I'm putting my inflection on that as if he was disappointed in them. I don't know. That was a big step. I mean, okay, Lord, we're going to give it our best shot. But he goes from, bring the, uh, you give them something to eat to bring the food here to me. Jesus has them sit down on, uh, on the green grass by groups of hundreds and fifties. And uh, <clears throat> then the miracle happens. And most of us know about the miracle. And, and let, me, let me give it to you like this. Jesus borrowed the bread. Jesus blessed the bread oh, and the fish. And then he broke the bread and the fish. Okay? He divided that small meal up among them all. That teaches us that what we see as division is often God's way of miraculous multiplication. Sometimes we're afraid to give. Sometimes we're afraid to, to hand it over to the Lord. Sometimes the disciples, you know, somebody says, wait, 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 stop. You said borrowed? Because I'm, I'm thinking that they just took it from that little boy. You know, we all know the story where it was a little lad had five loaves and two small fish. He had his dinner, his lunch, whatever you want to call it. And the disciples went over and found, well, you got the only food here. It's ours now. And some people have actually looked at the scripture and said, well, Jesus and those disciples were so mean. They took that little boy's dinner. Isn't that just horrible? I think, what a lame excuse for a criticism. That little boy was in the crowd. You think he got skipped when the food started being passed around? He probably ate a whole lot more than he would have. He just sat down and had his lunch and said, I've got mine. No, he was, it was passed around. He, sat, he got to have all that he wanted to eat, probably got to eat more than he would have otherwise. And by the way, somebody took home 12 baskets full of leftovers. Who do you think that was? Probably that little boy. At least some of all he could carry, at least. I can just imagine how it felt when he got home and told Mama. See, the thing is, and we've got to see it this way, that little boy lent his, his, his meal to the Lord, and it turned out to be a really good investment. In fact, Scripture says in the book of uh, Proverbs, he who gives to the poor is actually lending to the Lord, and he will repay him again. That's always a good investment. We call it tithing. We call it uh, sacrifice. We call it surrender sometimes. But what it really turns out to be is Jesus is borrowing from us, but he always repays. 
Sometimes in money and sometimes in that which money cannot buy. But that teaches us that God can take our little bit. I just have a little bit, Lord. I just have a tiny little bit. He can take our little and make it into much. I mean, you may look at the gifts and talents and abilities that you have and think, well, I just don't have much. I mean, you look at what you have and, wow, this is not much. Jesus has a way. God has a way of taking your not much and making it into more than enough. Or you could just eat your lunch. You could just have your own and kind of sit there and take care of it. But see, we've got to remember, the provision that you're needing, the daily bread that you're praying for, often comes through this faith-giving-receiving process. And it may at first look like division. It may at first look like you're giving something up. It comes through this faith-giving and receiving process. But he fed them all with that one little meal, with 12 baskets left over. I didn't read that part yet, but... Uh, Verse 41, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 baskets of the broken pieces. And also the fish, there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. You know, this is silly, okay? But I hope in heaven someday that I'll get to see that rewind button that God has where he can look back. I want to see how this happened. I mean, I want to, I want to, I know obviously I won't be able to be there, but I want to see it and see how, what, how, how did he do it? Did he, did he break it and it's back and he breaks it and it's back and he breaks it and it's back? You know, it's just like it never stops. Well, we know that happened with the widow's cruise of oil. We know that happened with the, the, the flower in the barrel back in the Old Testament. But I think about the fish. This was broiled fish. This wasn't fish that was just like slimy and it was already cooked and he breaks it and it's cooked again. He breaks it and it's more than, was it greasy? I mean, there's all kinds of strange things you think about. But I, I want to see that. But let me finish with this, and it takes me back to the beginning. What I love really about this story in closing is that we see here, Jesus is, is teaching, Jesus is healing, Jesus is feeding these people the freshest bread these people have ever had. When you talk about fresh, it was just created. You talk about fresh. This wasn't yesterday's bread. It was fresh today, meeting today's needs. It wasn't yesterday's teaching. It was fresh today from the mouth of the Savior. This wasn't yesterday's healing. It was fresh from the Lord, meeting the needs of today. See, friends, when God asks you to give, He's ready to give you today's and tomorrow's provision. And we can always count on the Lord to meet our needs in fresh and a wonderful way. And, and this is, though it comes directly from Him, doesn't he usually use somebody else to bring it to us? That's where we come as The disciples got to do that. I mean, here the little boy did his part. The, the Lord did his part. The disciples did their We all get in on this. Friend, we live in a land that's hungry. We live in a land that uh, most, of, most people don't even know what they're hungry for. We live in a land and in a world that's very much like that crowd was today, like sheep without a shepherd, and they need our compassion. So the real question is, will we go about saying, Lord, here am I, send me, I want to feed them, I want to help them, I want to do what I can. They need our compassion. The question is, will you minister to them? And let me turn it upside down too and say, hey, are you one of those hungry for a fresh work of God's Spirit? Are you one of those that's hungry for a fresh word from the heart of God? Are you one of those that's hungry for a fresh wind of revival to blow across our land? Or are we going to settle for that day-old muffin that can break a window? If you would like to have the fresh bread, then I can tell you how you get there. You may be in a position where you have to give up the familiar. 
You may be in a position where you're going to have to invest in the kingdom of God and invest something that looks like you're giving it up so that he can break it, give it back to you, and multiply it. It may be time to give up that small meal we have in our hands. Let God fill up his provision and for us and for others. Because, friend, listen, we live in a world genuinely, genuinely, that doesn't really know what it means to be a Christian. I mean, we, 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 we live in a society today that thinks that being a Christian, you know what they say? Well, you know what those Christians, they hate. They hate everybody. Them Christians, they judge everybody. Them Christians, you know what, they, they've got that little Bible and they get in there and they've got it under their arm and they're pointing fingers. And You know why they think that? It's not because it's true. It's because that's what they see in the TV. Because you can't watch Hollywood. And there's nothing from Hollywood that gives any kind of honor or, or genuineness to the, to the kingdom and the, the, the word of God. Because the average American, I'm talking about, I'm going to Malawi next week. A lot of people in Malawi have never even heard the name of Jesus unless it was as a prophet. But right here in Oklahoma, there are people that don't know what it means or how you become a Christian. I mean, you think, well, they're in the middle of the Bible Belt. Everybody knows. No, they don't. Most of us, we just take that for granted, but they don't. You see, the Scripture tells us that God created a world. God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that's Genesis 1-1. You say, well, I don't even know if I believe that. Well, how else did we get here? I mean, we're here, we're here you know. There had to be a first cause. If there's a first cause that created everything, it had to be bigger and outside. But all that to one side, let's just take what Genesis says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, in the beginning, God created it perfect. God didn't create sin. God didn't create separation. God didn't create shame and guilt. In the beginning, God created it perfect. And into that perfect environment, he put his, his finest and highest creation. He put people into that creation. And for a time, there was perfect, unbroken fellowship between holy God, the creator, and his, his, his people. There was a friendship. There was a connection. And life-giving fellowship was constantly being pumped from the life side where God is into the life side where people were. But then a great tragedy struck when people decided to rebel against that creator. And they chose to walk away. And they chose that. There was only one thing that they'd been told not to do. They chose to do it. And in that moment, there was a great tearing. The scripture says there's a great gulf fixed between holy God because holy, holy, holy. And now here's man who is sinful. And God who is holy cannot be in the same place or in the same uh, relationship with sinful man. And so there was this great gulf fixed. And now here's life-giving, loving God. And here's death-suffering, death-reigning man. Because the scripture says the wages of sin is death. And though mankind still knows there's a hole in here, I ought to have some kind of a relationship with somebody. I'm made for more than this. You know what we do? We go around trying to find something that will satisfy us here on this earth. All the time yearning for something bigger, better, and more. But because of that great gulf, in fact, it was so terrible that God, uh, that man had actually sinned. He passed that down to his family. He passed that down to his kids. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And nothing short of a miracle was ever going to reconnect holy God and sinful man. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, Jesus came from the life side, invaded the death side, came across that great gulf, born of a virgin so that he didn't have that sin nature, 
lived a perfect sinless life, so he had no guilt, he had no shame, he had no separation. And here this one who has come from the life side is in the death side. Guess what he can do? He can take our death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus could die our death for us, and we could be set free from it. And so he came, Scripture says he lived that perfect sinless life, and then he went to that place called the cross. And on that cross, God put all of the sin, all the shame, all the suffering, all the separation on Jesus. Right there on that cross, the Bible says it like this, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I've said it before, but the wages of sin is death, but guess what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But it has to be received to be a gift. I can offer you a $20 bill, it's still mine until you receive it. Jesus said it like this, or it's in the first chapter of John, it says, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. And Jesus put it this way in John 5, 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he's not condemned, but he's passed over from death to life. That's what Christians believe. So the real question is, are you ready to receive that gift? Will you receive that gift? Have you accepted that gift of salvation that takes you from death to life, that takes you from sin back to righteousness? It's a gift. Have you received it? Because you do that by admitting that you're a sinner. I see myself. I'm on the wrong side of this deal. I want to be on the right side. I admit my sin and I repent and turn to God. And then you believe that God sent Jesus to die in your place and to rise again on the third day. And that God was looking at that and saying, oh, because I've risen, I raised him from the dead, that means I've accepted his sacrifice. And then you confess him as Lord, making him the boss of your life and the empowering agent of the rest of who you are. Because Scripture says it this way, if you believe in your heart, or excuse me, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The only reason you're not saved today is because you haven't repented Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confessed him as Lord. You could do that today. Leave behind that death and move over into the life that he's offering. Let's pray.